This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Uh, as we do every morning that we have this program, we bring an important, influential, interesting, thoughtful guest to come to the station electronically. And we talk about issues of interest and concern and importance and things that we need to think about. And today, of course, we're, we're delighted to have as our guest, uh, Moletsi Mbeki, a name that is certainly familiar to many, perhaps all of our listeners. He's been a businessman, an author, a commentator. And in the words of one of his business partners, uh, he is a quote unquote, a visionary. I'll let people try to guess who that who said that. Mr. Mbeki is a booster of the country's possibilities in all kinds of forums, as well as a blunt critic of the nation's governance and its failures. He studied engineering at the University of Warwick in Britain, and thereafter he was a BBC correspondent, he was a journalist and other versions. He was a consultant on railroads and transportation. He's been an operator for media company uh, and now has his own company, Pomegranate Media, and I should mention also, because I keep running into him there, he's the deputy chair of the South African Institute of International Affairs. He's one busy man, and we are delighted to have you uh, in, in our program today. Thank you, for, thank you for joining us. Well, it's great to be on your show. I have been on the station once, I think, a long time ago, maybe twice. But anyway, it's great to be back on the station. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you could make the time. Um, what I'd like to do on this program is not these short little two, three, four minute interviews where you ask two questions and then say thank you and goodbye, but give the guest a chance to actually think through the things that are interesting to them, challenging, perhaps provocative even. Uh, the platform becomes more yours than mine because I think audience members need to know what influential people are thinking about and why they're thinking that way. And given your own personal circumstances and your long association with politics, uh, people might assume that we were going to talk about the, the internal machinations of the African National Congress and why they're in the muddle that they're in right now. But I think we want to move beyond that. Let's, let's put that aside for a bit. Uh, they can deal with it on their own. I want you to, to help us understand just how South Africa got into the mess that it's in. Um, and I, I should mention that while we're talking, my house yet again uh, is under load shedding. And so my poor overworked inverter is bu busy generating enough electricity to give me a computer signal and uh, a Wi-Fi connection and hopefully it'll hang on long enough for us to get to the end of this program. <laughs> Tell us, explore how you think we got into the conundrums that we're in now. Well, Brooks, again, thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, South Africa, what we overlook uh, about South Africa is our, our, our long history and our long rule by, by, by nationalist governments. See, uh, South Africa, we've had a hundred years 
of government by nationalist organizations. Uh, the first nationalist uh, party that came into power in, in South Africa was the National Party. We forget, many people forget the National Party. But the National Party ruled South Africa from 1924 uh, to 1994 with a, a short break during the Second World War where they argued amongst themselves um, as to whether they should participate in the war against Germany in support of England or not. So there was a brief uh, break then. But otherwise, the, the National Party uh, ruled South Africa for, for, for a good 70 years uh, nearly. So that was the party of Africana nationalism. We, we have another nationalism in South Africa, uh, which is the nationalism of the Africans, uh, which is uh, the ANC is the representative of African nationalism. So when you look at, at South Africa, you can see that for the last 100 years, uh, we South Africa has been ruled by nationalist uh, organizations. Now, nationalist organizations, uh, what drives them is their grievance uh, for being excluded. Right? That's what nationalism is about, is people feel that they were excluded from the benefits um, by somebody else. So they mobilize against that somebody else. Uh, they mobilize uh, uh, opinion uh, of of the of all those who feel uh, they were excluded uh, in order to be included. Now, always the crisis arises uh, that those who get excluded, in, who were previously excluded, and then become included start to exclude others. And this leads to a crisis, leads to a conflict, to a new conflict. And we saw with the National Party, the National Party said it was excluded by the British when the British were the colonial power in South Africa. But what, once they got included, they started excluding the black people. So that created another, a, a new conflict between the African nationalists and the, the black population. And this culminated, as you know, in a near civil war in South Africa from the mid 1970s uh, until the, the National Party could not rule anymore and it had to negotiate. So that was that crisis of nationalism. Then the African nationalists took over and they also, they mobilized all the black people in South Africa to be, uh, to fight for inclusion. But once they got the inclusion, they started discriminating against, against first white people, colored people, uh, Indian people, which uh, with a, a policy they call black economic empowerment. So that is an, ex they started excluding that group. 
Now, when you exclude, then the, the people who are excluded fight back, and the and the group that that has been excluded in South Africa has a lot of economic power. So the conflict now between the African nationalists who control political power and the ones who are excluded, and the group that is included is mainly the middle class African group. So you have two conflicts in South Africa, the, the racial groups that are excluded, as well as the large part of the black, especially urban working class, who feel also excluded. So they start a new conflict arises, which is what we're having now. The form uh, this conflict takes is multifaceted, but one of its critical part is, is lack of investment. The, the, this conflict in South Africa leads to very low levels of investment because of the uncertainty uh, in our political system because of these conflicts. And that leads to a high unemployment, of course, because we have, and, uh, and poverty. And South Africa, as you know, has the highest unemployment uh, of countries of a similar nature in the world. So that's where the, we are with the crisis. That's where the crisis comes from today in South Africa. It's a long story, but that's the nature of the crisis. We're going to take a quick station break uh, right now. Um, we have sponsors and important public service messages and do those kinds of things that we're supposed to do. Uh, we're speaking with Moletzi and Becky, uh, and we'll be right back after this. But while we're, we're on our message, I want you to think about a question and perhaps pose an answer for us. Some people criticize business in this country and investors generally uh, as engaging in something called an investment strike, is that a is that a legitimate complaint, or is that a different is that is that wrongly phrased? But think about that, and we'll be right back. Uh, this is uh, Brooke Spector, the deep dive, and we're speaking with Maletsi and Becky. This is the deep dive with Brooke Spector. The Deep Dive, as you know, this is Brooke Spector, and we're pleased as our guest today to have Maletzi and Becky. Just before the break, I posed a question to him that uh, you sometimes hear the criticism of investors, both domestic and foreign, as engaging in something called a quote-unquote investment strike. Uh, is that a fair criticism, or is that misunderstanding the question? No, it's a misunderstanding of, 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 what, is, of what is happening. Uh, if you are living in an uh, uncertain environment, whatever is causing the uncertainty, if you are living in a society that, that, that has a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unpredictability, uh, a lot of conflict, then obviously, a normal human response is to minimize your exposure to that uncertainty, to the risk that you are faced with. You minimize uh, your exposure to the risk. You don't increase your exposure to the risk. 
Now, South Africa being a risk-ridden country for reasons that I, I, were, I tried to explain, obviously a, a, a wise, a normal person minimizes their exposure to the risk. So you, you don't take your savings and expose them uh, to being destroyed. Uh, where you have, we saw, for example, in July last year, the huge riots in KwaZulu Natal and the huge riots in Gauteng, which destroyed 50 million, 50 billion rands worth of property. Uh, those riots. So, the people who owned those properties had invested in South Africa, but their properties were destroyed in the riots because of the uh, the risky environment that South Africa is in. So it is it's an it's a it's a normal human response when you are in a risky environment that you invest as little as possible uh, in order to minimize uh, the, the possible losses that that you will suffer. So to call it an investment strike is not is not a correct description of it. It's normal uh, human behavior uh, when faced with risk. Uh, perhaps better defined, a risk aversion strategy then. It, well, what we have to do in South Africa is that we have to, uh, to reduce the risk in our country so that, they, the, the, so that investors can, uh, feel that they are not at uh, taking unnecessary risk and their faith not fa facing huge risks. So we have to, 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 to have a governance system that minimizes risks rather than that maximizes risk, which is the one that we have today, the government system we have today. Well, that, that's, you know, that's an easy formula uh, to say in the abstract. How, what specifically uh, would you recommend or propose or uh, or suggest, uh, whether it's government or business or government and, and business, uh, however you might want to put that, what would you, if, if you were king, what would you do? Okay, the, the first thing I would do if I were the king is to abolish all discriminatory, racially discriminatory laws. In the case of South Africa, uh, we have a law called uh, broad-based black economic empowerment, I would repeal that law because then immediately it, it means that nobody feels discriminated against. I would also repeal affirmative action laws. There's a law called uh, employment equity, which discriminates against uh, especially white people uh, in terms of employment. Uh, on the pretext of creating um, uh, equality in the country, but actually discriminates against uh, white people. So I would repeal the Employment Equity Act. I would repeal the broad-based Black Economic Empowerment Act so that nobody feels discriminated against. So the min minute you do that, then all races in South Africa will say, well, this is really our home where nobody's being discriminated against. We are all equal. We have uh, the same rights. So if I make an effort and I succeed, nobody 
is going to tell me, give shares to a black uh, person, which is what black economic empowerment says, I can keep my money uh, and I can employ whoever I want to employ uh, and not have to employ somebody prescribed to me by, by, by the government. I employ a person who can deliver the service, not a person who, who, who I'm instructed to employ. So already that removes a big part of uncertainty and a big part of risk uh, from the country. That is point number one. Now, what that, that will do is that then you will start to see investment growing. Uh, people will be more willing to invest in the, in, the, in the country. And when you invest then more, you create more jobs. So the level of poverty in South Africa will start to go down. So that conflict, uh, the conflict of, of, of the poor people feeling excluded, starts to go away. So that risk starts to, 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 to decline. Uh, and then you create a hopeful environment for everybody in South Africa, whereby we feel that, well, there is a future for us and there's a future for our children and our grandchildren because everybody's being treated fairly. Uh, and then the country uh, grows uh, and the country prospers uh, and the risks are, are reduced. That's where we should be going. We're speaking with Maletsi Mbeki, uh, commentator, analyst, uh, agent provocateur, businessman, and uh, broad thinker, uh, as one of his business partners once called him a visionary, but uh, I think he would prefer the term realist, uh, but I'm not sure on that. Uh, but with regard to your your analytical framework that you just laid out, the fly in that particular ointment, some people will argue, is that yes, it will encourage investment, but it will encourage investment in precisely those areas that are capital intensive and employment uh, minimal. There will not be the take up of that 34, 35% of unemployed people who have very little, if any, job skills for the current or future economy. How do you deal with that? Well, you, you can deal with that. If you, if you look at who, where the majority of the unemployed are in South Africa. They are in the, in the rural areas, especially in the former Bantustan or in the former homelands. So that population has access to land, but it has no access to capital to invest in, its, in, in, producing, uh, in producing agriculture. So what I would do is I would provide capital to, to that population. Now, how I provide it, you know, the, this is the ex experts know how to do it. But I would provide, cap I'll make capital available to that segment of the population. Secondly, I would provide expertise to them. In agriculture, they are called extension workers who can then show them how to grow uh, tomatoes in a more commercially viable way. 
and so on and so on. So then I start to create commercial enterprises for this poor population in the rural areas. So that instead of them develop, depending on social grant and on social welfare, they start to, to, to develop their own uh, small businesses. Uh, and I know because I'm on, I'm on the uh, uh, board of trustees of the Consumer Goods Council Foundation. The Consumer Goods Council is made up of our huge retail companies. Uh, the retail companies want to buy from small uh, from small farmers, um, but the small farmers are not producing. So, if I if we adopt a policy of helping the small farmers to to produce, the market is there already. The retailers are willing to buy from them, and so these people start to to make a living within their skills level. And their children will no longer have, have to be living in those conditions. Their children can then go into higher education and get into the professions. So you break that cycle of poverty that we have in South Africa, that we have had for the last 150 years since the establishment of the mining industry. We break that cycle by, by creating activity in the rural areas in those communities, investing in irrigation, investing in in, in training in training that population, in investing in, and then they start to become more productive. We set up, uh, you know, something like the kibbutzi that that Israel used to have, something similar to that, and then they eventually, of course, they grow out of that and go into the normal uh, modern uh, economy. So that th those are doables and they are models of what has been done in other countries before, so we can learn from those countries. We're speaking with uh, Moletsi and Becky, uh, who was laying out uh, an ambitious agenda. I gave him the official rights to be king, and he's beginning to tell us exactly what his proclamations will be. But we're going to take a station break. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to pose another question for him. Um, many critics argue that the key bottlenecks in things in environments like the one you've laid out are the question of land ownership in rural areas. Um, the communal land system uh, prevents people from leveraging uh, access to uh, easy access to capital on the one hand, and the breakdown in especially state-owned enterprises uh, in transportation to get crops to market easily uh, to in, uh, allow for investment uh, is yet another problem. Think about that, if you will, for a minute. I know you've been thinking about these things for years, but just after we come back from our station break, Perhaps you can tell me how we're going to deal with that when you get to be in charge. We're speaking to Maletzi and Becky, and uh, this is Brooke Spector, The Deep Dive, and now a word from sponsors. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We are back with the deep dive. I'm Brooke Spector, and it's Moletsi and Becky, who is in the hot seat for us today. 
And just before we went on a commercial break, I, I posed yet another question for him about dealing with rural land tenure uh, and the ability of individuals to manage to use land as a way of leveraging uh, investment, uh, collateral, if you will, and the failure of state-owned enterprises and transportation to deal with uh, the movement of goods and services. And I'm sure you have thought about these, these questions, and I'd like to hear how you would solve this. Okay, let's start with the, with, with the land. We, we have two, essentially we have two systems of uh, land tenure in South Africa. Uh, most of the land in South Africa is uh, held under freedom, especially agricultural land. That is where most of, how most of the land is held. So when you look at our commercial agriculture, whether it's a maize farmer or the wine grower or the cattle breeder, or the commercial side of our agriculture, the land is freehold, is owned by the farmer 100%. So the farmer can, can, can go to a bank and say to the banker, lend me money, I need uh, to buy new cattle, I need to buy a new tractor or whatever. Uh, I need to strengthen my fences. So, uh, and here, my land is mine. I own it 100%. It, uh, it's collateral. If I don't pay you back, you can take it and sell it to somebody else. So, most of the land in South Africa is freehold. Uh, so, that, it, that would be about, I, I would guess, about 80% of, of, of land in South Africa is freehold. You have another section of land which is owned by the state. Uh, and for, for the, I won't elaborate because the state owns lots of land. They own Kruger National Park, for example, is the state owned land. But we have what I call the former uh, Bantustan or the former homelands, those are state land. That land is owned by the state. And it's administered by traditional leaders or chiefs. They, on behalf of the state, they are the administrators of the land. So the state say that land is communally owned, but actually it's not communally owned. It's owned by the South African government. It's just that it's administered through the system of traditional leaders in, in, in those areas. So the question now, it's very difficult to change the land tenure in that area because there's lots of common ages where there's common grazing and so on and so forth. So what you need is you need a financial system that enables the people in those who, who are living in those lands that can operate where there is no direct collateral as we have in the freehold part of, of South Africa. So we find a different type of collateral, if you wish, a different form of collateral, a different form. So for example, one of the ways that, that, 
that, uh, for example, the Women's Development Bank uses, is they, sub, they set up, they finance group of landowners so that the group enforces the payment rather than the collateral. So the, the so if I if if I have five or ten families and they want to borrow money to for their little plot, they come together as ten families and they then enforce the payment, the families and they are kind of a cooperative. They then enforce the payment. So the money is more or less loaned to the cooperative and the cooperative then makes sure that its members pay back the money. So you don't need a physical collateral. You use moral pressure of, of the group to make sure that the, the, the group pays. And it works. It works in, in, in fact. And we have a, got a strong tradition of this, for example, uh, in the system in the townships, in the urban townships called Stockfells. Uh, the Stockfell system, nobody has collateral, but they, they pull together their savings and every month somebody takes all the savings and buys whatever they have to do. But the following month they have to put, contribute so that another family can, uh, can get the bundle of money to, 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 to be able to spend. So you don't need collateral in that situation. You use moral suasion, I think that's what it's called, and the group dynamics. So, so that that so that you can do it in South Africa with that part of the land that is called communal land ownership. So you don't need a collateral there. Then, my other the other half of my question, of course, was about transportation. And the uh, oh yes yes that's sorry I no, no all that all that infrastructure is owned by the government as you know the the railway infrastructure and, and so now I I think we all know that the the South African government is way out of its depth it should never have involved itself in managing economic enterprises because they don't know how they they. To go back to, to, to my my beginning about the nationalists, the nationalists, because they were excluded, they have no expertise in running businesses. So so they don't know how to run South African Airways. They don't know how to run uh, railways. They don't know, know. And the result is very there is there for everybody to see. These companies are all bankrupt uh, with with the nationalists of the ANC trying to run the, the, these companies. So we have to find a way of, of, of managing, for example, the railways. We have to introduce uh, private train operators, which is what in many parts of the world happens anyway, uh, with the train operator. The government remains the owner of the infrastructure, but the running of the transport is done by, by, by the private sector who know how to do these things. So that's what we should be doing in South Africa. I mean, the, one of the examples that, that hadn't occurred to me until fairly recently, 
Uh, I happen to like blueberries in my breakfast diet. Uh, and the blueberry growers in this country uh, have become uh, numerous and they have developed uh, good access to markets internationally as well as domestically. And now they complain that because their crops are perishable, you can't stock them in a warehouse somewhere for forever, uh, they, it doesn't work. Because of the inefficiencies of rail or port or air, airport transportation, uh, their crop doesn't get transported to its intended purchasers, and they lose revenue, the country loses market access, and uh, everybody loses out in the long run, and I don't get my blueberries for breakfast. I mean, how do we fix this? Besides simply saying that business should step in. Well, Brooks, there is, in a democracy, we are a democracy. We have to fix it by electing a different government from the ANC government. The ANC government... Uh, they don't know how to, rail, to, to, to run railways, but they put their ANC members to, to milk the railways uh, and mismanage the railways. So, so we have to elect somebody who can run railways. So that is the simple answer. And then the, the, the new uh, managers uh, can introduce uh, experts in, into that field. So the the ANC, that's why I said that South Africa, we've had a hundred years of nationalist rule or misrule, if you wish. We are, we are coming to the end of that era. And the, the, the near collapse of the ANC government, which, which we all can see, including its president now tangled himself uh, in all sorts of misdemeanors. It, it's, a, it's a symptom of the end of the nationalist era. So South Africa is going to be moving into a new era where, uh, whereby we, we are not preoccupied about people's race, but we are preoccupied about the development of the country. So I am optimistic that, for example, we are starting to see the opposition parties working together, starting to learn about coalitions. Recently, there was a, a delegation of eight parties that went to Denmark and spent a week there learning about how coalition parties work. Denmark has a long history of coalitions. There was another group that went to Germany, uh, and there's a conference planned, I think, early next year or, or, of, of, in South Africa, uh, about her, uh, learning more about uh, coalitions. So, so it's becoming clear that the ANC is coming to the end of its life and, and South Africa is going to be moving to a new era uh, uh, away from the, the, the nationalism of the past. And so I personally am quite hopeful that in another two, three, four years, South Africa will be very different from what it is today. In all of that um, that you set out, that in, in some ways that's that's very optimistic as a scenario. In other ways, it sort of predicts 
uh, much turmoil and struggle and disagreement and public wrangling. Um, how is how is the country? How are the leaders of the country going to learn how to work together uh, if they espouse very different models and ideas and visions uh, for a future? How, how how do you get from one version of governance to another? <laughs> well, hopefully, democracy is a, that we have makes it possible through the ballot to go from one uh, governance system to another go governance system through the uh, election of new emergence of new political parties with new ways of thinking uh, and then using the ballot. So that is one, uh, that is the, the preferred way, obviously. However, we have to accept that people with entrenched interests, uh, sometimes we see this in Zimbabwe, for example, where the ZANU-PF refuses to vacate power even when the population votes against them. And then they bring in the military, which is where they are now under military rule. So that's a scenario which one cannot, you know, uh, discount, it, it can happen. So. The ANC could do the same if it loses the elections in 2024. So that's a scenario that we have to keep in mind. Hopefully it won't behave like ZANU-PF, but, but you never know. Uh, so we, we, we have to keep that in mind that it could do it. Uh, it could uh, rig the elections. It could undermine the electoral process. It is already blocking the changes into the electoral system, as you, as you see with the electoral amendment bill, uh, the constitutional court said that uh, under the the constitution, there has individuals have to be able to stand, but the ANC is using its majority in parliament to block that or to emasculate that process. So you know those are that's the real history. Hopefully, let me. Mm. No, go ahead. Sorry, finish your thought. No, I was saying hopefully uh, it will not. Uh, we will not go the ZANU-PF route in South Africa, but we can't say. You can never say never. I, I was just going to add that even in established democracies like the United States, there there are politicians and political parties uh, who want to argue over whether or not an election has actually taken place the changes government i mean we, we we've we've lived through that in the last year as well and uh it's it's not a it's not a uh, it's not a guarantee that a hundred that 200 years of political tradition uh will produce uh peaceable transitions uh without uh, uh difficulty uh so I, I i that's a cautionary note i would simply throw in uh, to our discussion. I want to change the focus a little bit because you do have a hand uh, in examinations of international relations and international affairs. And as I said earlier, I see you uh, sometimes at the uh, Institute of International Affairs uh, in Johannesburg for discussions on international politics and international policies. Uh, how would you evaluate the South African government's current foreign relationships and its policies 
and I'm I'm sort of alluding to uh, Ukraine and, and Russia, but not necessarily just that. And you brought up the question of Zimbabwe as well. But I give you a sort of an, an, an open canvas, an empty canvas to paint this picture on, if you'd like. Well, this is such a big topic, Brooks. Uh, let me tell you, many years ago, I was at, there was an, an incident where South Africa, Syria, this was how, what happened. This was in the in the uh, mid '90s, so soon after 1994, Syria wanted to buy a piece of military equipment from South Africa uh, for their tanks, for their military tanks. It was a targeting piece for targeting uh, the fire, uh, the fire of of the tank, and the Israel and the United States opposed South Africa from selling this piece of equipment. So, so the editor of the Star asked me, what did, what did I think about this? So the two of us said, you know, you have to understand the whole context of, South Af- of new South Africa's relations with the whole world. You can't just take it out of context. So we have to educate the, the population about South Africa's uh, relations with the big wide world. So the, 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 the editor said, okay, why don't we do it this way? Why don't you write uh, articles about relations between South Africa and the East, South Africa and the West, South Africa and the North, South Africa and Africa, and then educate the population so that everything is, is put in context. So I ended up writing a 17 series article on South Africa's international relations for the Star newspaper. So that was, now if that was in the 90s, if that shows you the complexity of South Africa's relations with the big wide world, Today, that complexity is multiplied many times from what it was uh, in, in, the, in the 1990s. Uh, so there, there is no simple answer to, to South Africa's uh, international uh, policies and what its policies should be. Uh, one of the big problems we have is, is that the, the, the ANC government is very unclear as to what South Africa's national interests are. And that, in a way, is at the bottom of the confused, let me put it, be generous and say, South Africa's confused foreign policy comes from the fact that the ANC government and the ANC itself has no clarity about what South Africa's national interests are. It has no clarity about what South Africa's national security uh, issues are. And so it fumbles on an ad hoc basis. And we saw this uh, at the beginning of the war in, in, in Kuwait. The Minister of Foreign Affairs said that the Russians should get out of Kuwait. The president said they must uh, we we are neutral. So this is 
when you you don't understand what your national interests are then obviously you you're, you are totally at a loss on how to relate with the big issues of the globe that are evolving and change and changing every day and that is south africa south africa's problem that's why as far as policy is totally unpredictable unpredictable because it itself doesn't know what its national interests are. Just, just for clarity, I'm sure you meant Ukraine as opposed to Kuwait, but you may have been staring no, at sorry, I meant Ukraine, yeah. Sorry. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's easy. There are 194 countries out there. Sometimes I make this mistake. Yeah. I, I, I stumble. We're speaking with uh, Moletzi and Becky, uh, and we're going to take another station break. And after that, we'll wrap up, and I'll ask him one last question. Uh, for thinking about, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of South Africa? Hold that thought. We'll be right back after this next break. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is The Deep Dive. It's Brooke Spector, and we're speaking, and we're delighted to be speaking with Moletzi and Becky uh, businessman, commentator, cogitator, uh, visionary, realist, and analyst. Uh, and I posed one final question. Time is against us in many ways, but in sum, in, in the totality of things, are you a, an optimist or a pessimist about South Africa's future? Perhaps a minute on that, if you might. Okay. Well, Brooks, I... I was, uh, I lived in exile for nearly 30 years uh, in the fight against apartheid. Uh, when I left South Africa, I think I was 18 years old. I was, in fact, I was younger than that. Uh, we all thought that ah, within four or five years, this whole problem will be done and over with. And uh, so, so I went to exile. As it happened, it, it took 30 years before the apartheid problem was resolved. Uh, but it did get resolved. So, and I did come back from exile and I'm and, um, living in South Africa. So my own perspective is that our problems today are compared to the problem of apartheid, are actually relatively more uh, easier to solve. And, and, and the obstacles like uh, nationalism and so on, like the ANC's nationalism and the ANC's misrule and the ANC's corruption, these are relatively minor problems compared to the challenge of, of, of apartheid. And remember, the apartheid regime was armed to the teeth. It even had nuclear weapons. So, but the problem of apartheid was, was resolved. So am I optimistic about South Africa? Definitely. I think uh, the, the, the NC is a, definitely failed as a government of South Africa. It, it's certainly failing now. Uh, but I think the NC is a very weak government uh, and, and it, and we can, the people of South Africa, through the, the ballot, will replace it. 
uh, and we'll come up with new ideas and re rebuild the country. So yes, I'm optimistic. Well, we've been speaking with Maletsi and Becky, and uh, I must say I join you in optimism. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here either. Uh, yes, <laughs> my wife made me stay, but uh, I'm I'm not unhappy that I did. Uh, and next, this is Brooke Spector, and we'll be back again next week with another guest on this show, The Deep Dive. I hope you will join us again next week on Friday morning at 9 o'clock on this station. <laughs>